0: But I try, and I try, and I try, and I try. Hello
1: and welcome to Call to Action, the go-to podcast for anyone trying to make sense of the world of marketing and advertising. In an industry that is a minefield of utter bollocks, we aim to capture our heroes and allies from the front line to have a chinwag with. It's like Pokemon Go, with the single but vital exception that it's not a short-term bandwagon of shite. It's brought to you by Gasp, and I'm Giles Edwards, co-founder and MD. Today, I've caught Ian Pritchard. Self-proclaimed advertising douchebag, Ian has worked as an ad creative and planner for over 20 years, firstly in London and now in Melbourne, Australia. He also lectures, consults and writes regularly for Walk and other ad industry publications. Where Did It All Go Wrong? is not the title of Theresa May's memoirs, it is the title of Ian's spectacular book on advertising. Praise for the book comes in droves, with RGA's head of strategy, Rob Campbell, declaring, Ian is funny and insightful. I hate him. Welcome to the show, Ian.
0: Thanks, Charles. Thanks for having me. I, was say, I should point out uh, my first book yeah because the second one's coming so
1: Ah, absolutely we'll come on to that (laughs) Uh, let's limber up with our quick fire questions then so Ian football or rugby Uh, football dance or rave
0: Uh, dance
1: print or digital Uh, both England or Australia
0: well that's a hard one being Scottish you (laughs) know what I've been away for so long that I can Say England and and not um, not hate myself. So yeah, <laughs> uh,
1: Glastonbury or Cannes Festival.
0: Glastonbury.
1: Don Draper or Don Corleone. Oh, Corleone. Independent or network.
0: Oh, another tough one. I hope my bosses aren't listening. Independent. <laughs> i snookered you there sorry
1: (laughs) now your career like many to be fair has taken a few detours on its way to melbourne so can you start by sharing with us what was your first ever job and what was your first proper job and if you don't manage to squeeze or or even crowbar i don't care your global techno house hit into the answer i'm going to keep repeating the question
0: Yeah, well, I mean, that stuff's kind of interesting because that sort of got in the way of of kind of me getting into the sort of normal workforce. So I left, um, I went to art school. I don't know what it's like being a student nowadays. Maybe you have to actually attend lectures or, you know, do work. But art school in the late 80s, uh, there was less pressure, you know, to do that. So so you could do other things. So I got, uh, you know, it was around the time of sort of uh, the emerging Acid House scene, uh, although it wasn't called that at the time. Uh, But, you know, I was really interested in music and everything. I played in bands and stuff. So um, after leaving art school, got into uh, the sort of nascent emerging club scene, became a DJ, ran club nights, eventually started some record labels, did my own music, had a a couple of sort of minor... um, hits on 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 that scene so really you know did that all the way up until i think it was 1996 really before i actually got a proper job Uh, and then even then that was a byproduct uh, of that so when you do record labels you have to design you know well for younger listeners uh, this was when music came in big black plastic Twelve inch, uh, you know, objects. So labels needed to be designed, uh, covers needed to be designed. So because I'd been the, the arty one who'd went to art school, uh, it, it was given to me to do. So I had to figure out how to how to use an Apple Mac, you know, and so um, sort of became a graphic designer. By accident, mm. and so that was my first proper job. Then setting ads for a local newspaper, and then eventually, uh, you know, worked at a little agency in Aberdeen, where, where I come from, um, doing sort of internal comms for oil companies uh, and things. And then I moved to London at the end of the 90s. Obviously, the whole sort of dot com thing was was going off, uh, but you really needed to be in London. Uh, you know, to be part of that. So I moved there, worked for um, a company called Open that was part of Sky TV. Uh, I think it was co-owned by Sky TV, BT and HSBC Bank. Uh, So this was interactive TV. So I don't know if you remember that red button stuff uh, back in the day. And then just sort of blundered into the advertising business uh, that way. uh, Weapon Seven, who are kind of still around. I think it's part of uh, part of BBDO or something um, in London now. But that was a little uh, sort of indie, uh, very sort of you know cutting edge indie agency around you know early days of digital advertising in London. There was only three or four. You know, was the likes of Polk and Dare, I think, uh, at the time. Uh, there was us. So we worked out of a corridor in. FCB's building in Newman Street. That was the sort of really formative type you know, obviously I came into the industry probably quite late, you know, compared to other people. I didn't have much of a clue about advertising. I knew, you know, I was a kind of designer, you know, so I um, really got the chops there. And then, you know, a few other things in London, then ended up out in Australia nine years ago, uh, To went, went to BBDO. In Melbourne, and uh, yeah, I've been here ever since. So um, it was a wee- weird way in, uh, late to the game, still trying to figure it out, to be honest. But,
1: uh... <laughs> <laughs> I think the good ones are.
0: Yeah, you know, I guess uh, inspirations for some of the stuff in there was just uh, was kind of looking around and, and seeing how, how little knowledge or history, uh, sense of history, you know, many people have uh, In the business you know i was kind of probably you know a lot of the people i worked with in the early days you know i was in awe uh, of some of them you know because of their uh just their sort of legacy and 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 stuff there seems to be less of that now it's almost as if uh, expertise uh, is uh, you know there's less respect for that uh, than perhaps you know, would be optimal yeah I agree, I
1: think I've heard you refer to um the year zero approach before yeah. where where everything's treated as if it all started in two thousand and seven yeah so I think your points your points valid so so back to your book though the title is inspired in part by george best
0: that is that is correct, yeah, yeah I mean it's a fairly well known story uh well I guess you know it seemed like it was to me or well, you know it's funny i mean i i do Presentations, you know, around the the book uh, in in Australia, and uh, of course, people have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> they, I mean, they have no idea what I'm talking about in general, but specifically <laughs> about George Best, you know. So, uh, yeah, so it's probably unsurprising that it, it sold better in uh, in the UK than it, than it did out here. <laughs> but uh, I mean, the you know, the basic the the basic George Best story is um, George, arguably the most talented you know footballer of his generation but he ended up retiring you know the first time uh, uh, from the game at the age of 27 you know which is really when most players are are really at the top of their game uh, and the story you know but he was kind of more interested in in sort of the company of uh, of you know glamorous uh, Miss World winners and in casinos and drinking and stuff than he was was in football, um, you know, which is probably reasonable to, to uh, consider. But the story goes that George was in uh, was in w- w- was in the hotel uh, above some casino. He was uh, um, he just uh, won, you know, the probably equivalent of about half a million pounds on the roulette uh thing you know in the company of uh of either a former or current miss world and so after they finished the game they w- went up to their room uh, and apparently they're so they're lying on the bed uh covered in money uh and a little irish waiter comes to the door with a magnum of uh champagne that they'd ordered and uh and so the little irish waiter has a look at george Miss World, all the money, and then, I'm not going to do the Irish accent, and he says, tell me, George, <laughs> where did it all go wrong? You know, so, Because this was the story uh, of, of George was this sort of wasted talent, you know, who'd sort of thrown it all away. But, of course, on the surface uh, to this waiter, it didn't look like much was wrong. Um, but I thought it was an interesting uh, parallel with uh, when you look at, uh, at the the numbers that are being sort of bandied around about uh, about the advertising business and the amount of money so you know there's more money uh being spent and generated in advertising than at any time and it's growing you know so on the surface it looks like it's a uh, it's a sort of very positive and vibrant uh industry but of course <clears throat> you know you scratch below below the surface and uh you see that, you know, I mean, you just need to spend five minutes uh, in an agency to know that margins are being squeezed, uh, you know, salaries have, you know, uh, you know, haven't really uh, increased probably in about 10 years, in some cases uh, going down. So there's a load of money, but where's it all going? There's a sense that, uh, well, I mean, there's a real truth that about, you know, 70 cents in every dollar spent in digital uh, is being hoovered up by... Uh, uh, obviously, our friends at Google uh, and yeah. Facebook, uh, and fair play to them, you know, they've, they've just been they've been better at operating uh, in in this sort of system. But but even amongst that remaining money, there's so so much being hoovered up by fraud, all kinds of nefarious uh, activity, and it just seems it just seems like something has gone horribly wrong. Um, I guess I, I was attempting to. Not solve the problem, but just point to a few uh, perhaps less obvious areas uh, where you know where we've you know uh, dropped the ball, uh, and and other people have seen a business opportunity, you know some more legal than others, uh, and <laughs> and have come in and, uh, and and scooped that up. So it's a you know it's kind of my sort of catchphrase. For it was, you know, we've got, uh, as an advertising industry, uh, we've got a bit of an identity crisis. Uh, and I think, yeah. um, you know, that uh, in order, you know, it's not insurmountable, but we need to figure out what we are, uh, what, what purpose we serve, you know, within the economy and what, what kind of things do we actually want to make. That's the big challenge. I was a bit worried, you know, some of these thoughts in the book uh, had been hanging around for a few years, you know, and when I when I put it out, I thought, I wonder if I'm actually too late, uh, you know, with some of this stuff. But then, mm-hmm. you know, so I mean, it's been out over a year, and every week, um, you know, there seem to be new stories emerging in the news and, and thing. I think actually, you know, I wasn't late, you know, in many respects, I was early uh, with some of these things. So. Sorry, that was a long answer to the first question.
1: No, no, long, we like long answers. All we right. like long answers. Well, funny enough, I was going to say, actually, Amazon's, um, I suppose, own algorithm on their author's page suggests that customers who bought your book or your first book also bought items by Bob Hoffman, Byron Sharp, and Richard Shotton. So that's a yeah. good associated company, but the, the yeah. first of whom, um, Bob Hoffman, he obviously he, he goes by ad contrarian. He's, yeah. I feel he's been talking about certainly the murkiness of, of and, and fraud that is sadly rife in, in digital advertising. Yeah, yeah.
0: well, I think his, uh, his uh, not his most recent book, but I think the one he did a, a couple of years ago, Bad Men, that's probably the, the definitive document of, of that particular uh, point of view. Yeah, it's funny, you know, because cause you say when my book comes up, it shows other people bought those. I hope that when, you know, uh, some of those <laughs> other books you mentioned, if they came up and and, and if I'm in the recommended thing uh, <laughs> for that, that that would be more <laughs> useful to me, because uh, uh, <laughs> you know they, they sell lots more books than than I do. But yeah,
1: <laughs> well, it's a it's a it's a good, um, uh, I think, very complementary group of authors to be uh, amongst.
0: Yeah, well, it's, you know, certainly for somebody like me who doesn't have quite the profile uh, of some of those other people, you know, it's kind of, uh, I mean, it's good to be included in some small way in that set. But it's also, uh, you know, I think on, on the sort of back cover of my book, I said that I said there's a proto-meme that's starting to go critical, you know, so it wasn't, you know, it's kind of been humble ish and you know, saying these are not necessarily my original thoughts or ideas it's part of a sort of groundswell uh, and i think that's fairly you know obvious that uh, and, and every day there's more people coming around to the idea that we need to sort of rethink uh, mm-hmm. you know some of some of what we're doing um but the the next book The title of my next book is called "Shot by Both Sides," so that's uh, I kind of nicked that from the uh, Howard Devoto uh, song of the same name. But it's it's kind of um, you know because it's sort of addressing that sort of uh, challenge that that we have now. Because I think we've got you know uh, you know on the one side, this is not to be disrespectful to. Bob Hoffman uh, uh, or others in, in any way but that the you know whilst i, I sort of buy into seventy eighty uh, percent of of what he says i think it's to be there's just a danger that he and, and some others you know occasionally just go a little bit too far in their anti digital stance you know because i think mm. i think it's it's a fact that uh, you know it's almost the, the digital label has almost become uh, kind of nonsensical now because you know things that used to be analog or digital obviously most television is now delivered over the internet out of home is digital um, you know you know there's a there's a lot of positive uh, aspects to what the potential of digital technology is uh, so I think it's a Uh, It's wrong to come out on a sort of, you know, almost quasi sort of Luddite stance, I think, is a mistake. But of course, on on the other hand, to, uh, you know, to go to, you know, I think the, the, you know, the the opposite end of that spectrum is the sort of totally ad tech, uh, martech kind of, uh, you know, uh, dismissing creativity and being purely sort of data and algorithm uh, driven I think that's equally uh, equally wrong so I sometimes feel like I'm stuck in the middle in a sort of no man's land uh, you know with kind of half a foot in both camps if
1: you know what I mean. You talk of the Dunning-Kruger effect can mm. you explain what that is and what your point the point is that you're making about the industry?
0: Yeah uh, sure well the the Dunning-Kruger effect again you know, it's fairly well known uh, in in sort of uh, uh, psychology so there's there's two uh, American psychologists David Dunning and Justin Kruger. Uh, and they had this, you know, this is the great thing about uh, uh, you know psychology and science in general is sometimes great sort of breakthroughs or revelations come from relatively kind of mundane uh, observations. Uh, and so they, uh, uh, you know, despite being very clever scientists, they were big fans of uh, TV shows like America's Got Talent. And, uh, and they used to watch these, particularly the auditions, uh, and they would see these um, contestants you know, that would come were that clearly had no talent whatsoever, you know, and, uh, you know, in their own heads, they sounded like Mariah Carey, uh, but then what <laughs> came out of their mouths was this hideous sort of cacophony, you know, and they, and, and they kind of, they, they sort of enjoyed this. And then it became crystallized when there was a story uh, about a bank robber in Pittsburgh. Uh, it was a guy called MacArthur Wheeler uh, and he'd apparently uh, gone and robbed a couple of banks in broad daylight in Pittsburgh. This was in the late 90s um, and and uh, had been arrested about two hours later. But he couldn't believe that the police had actually caught him uh, because despite the fact that he'd never disguised himself uh, at all, he'd read somewhere that uh, lemon juice was, was used uh, in the manufacture of invisible ink. Uh, so he rubbed his face with lemon juice before going into the bank, and he'd taken a little sort of selfie, you know, with one of these old Polaroid cameras, you know, where the picture comes out the bottom of the camera. Do you remember those? Yeah, yeah. And of yeah. course, he'd taken his picture, and there was a blank wall, and so he was convinced he was invisible, you know, but he just misaimed his his shot. So he went in and robbed the bank's. And uh, so, the, you know, these sort of two things came together for uh, for Dunning and Kruger. Uh, and and they sort of came to the conclusion that not only was uh, MacArthur Wheeler too stupid to be a bank robber, but he was too stupid to even recognize his own stupidity, you know. So <laughs> it's kind of connected to the sort of overconfidence uh, bias you know and so what what they they came to the conclusion that uh, that you know many of us are very very confident idiots and so uh, you know it's, uh, yeah. I, I always enjoyed that story and so I, thought yeah. I sort of built that in i think when you look around you know some of the um you know, particularly in the in the advertising press, you know some of the opinion pieces. Well, in fact, most of them, and a lot of the things that get said, and you just you know you think these people are very very confident, uh, yet don't have the first clue uh, what they're really talking about. Um, but um, uh, just uh, for any listeners who are thinking, who is this arrogant uh, twat? Uh, you know, I, I I use the story because it's very much my own story. Uh, because, uh, um, but I'll I'll tell I'll, t- I'll tell the story. I mean, this is just maybe nine or ten years ago. So I got I just come out to Australia, and um, I. Uh, so this was at, at BBDO. So I'd been hired there because I was this sort of digital guy, you see. So I was full of all of this, uh, you know, uh, advertising's dead. People want to have conversations with brands, you know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and I really believed all that at the time. And I got wheeled out to uh, to one of uh, to the head office of one of our clients. Uh, and the, uh, what I didn't know was this this client or one of the uh, early uh, sponsors of um, the Arambur Bath Institute. So that's uh, University of South Australia. So that's the home of, you know, Byron Sharp, Rachel Kennedy, people like that. Um, yeah. Uh, I knew nothing about any of that. You see, so I went out to this client and gave the big spiel about how you need to stop, uh, uh, you know, spending money on on you know, uh, ancient. Uh, technologies like TV and everything's got to be social and blah, blah, blah. And of course, there's about 200 of these brand managers all sitting looking at me like with you know these blank expressions on their faces. And I was like, well, what's wrong with these people? And of course, uh, <laughs> at the end, uh, one sort of kindly brand manager pulled me to one side and said, uh, Ian, this is all very entertaining and, uh, and all that, but you will get nowhere with these people. Uh, talking like that. And I was like, but why? The sky is falling, <laughs> all that kind of stuff. So this had been 2010. So I reckon that it was kind of hot off the press or hadn't been out very long. She gave me the, the Byron Sharp book, uh, How Brands Grow. And she said, read that book, understand that book, and don't come back out here and, until you do. Uh, and so, so I, I took it away, and I read it over the course of a year, Probably a couple of times, still in denial. Um, yeah. But then, you know, eventually, uh, the penny dropped, and I thought, and so this was my Dunning-Kruger peak, right? Which is, mm-hmm. which is, you know, you can you can plot it on a sort of graph, and it's where you're at the absolute peak of stupidity. Uh, <laughs> however, that corresponds with the peak of your confidence in your own stupidity. Course. So yeah, uh, and so eventually, uh, so after about a year, I thought, Jesus, you know, I've had a reasonable career, you know, for the last seven or eight years, uh, despite not having a clue what I'm talking about and being completely wrong about everything. Um, and so that was that was quite quite a moment. So uh, you know, so when I you know I when in the, the book and, and things, you know, when you talk about the Dunning-Kruger effect, that's not me. Being some sort of uh, pompous kind of uh, you know buffoon. It's really I'm telling my own story, so that hopefully other other people who who come across that you know might sort of benefit from that and think and really just challenge you know your own assumptions about things. You know what is the evidence for what you're saying? Because if it's just some bollocks that you've read uh, in <laughs> Forbes, then unfortunately that doesn't really count you know so that that was a big moment uh really for me and a a humbling sort of moment um and you know so i just you know my my hope is more people uh will have those types of revelations i guess is the opposite also true
1: um you think of the wise man doubting himself
0: well that's it there's a there's a thing so that the um I borrowed the the sort of graph of the Dunning-Kruger Peak. It actually comes from, it's something that photographers use. They call it the Dunning-Kruger Peak of photography, Um, you know, because uh, in in that situation, you'll be familiar with the phrase, all the gear and no idea. Um, So this is common in photography circles, you know. Uh, And and so they've called the the sort of opposite of the Dunning-Kruger Peak is what they call the John Snow Trough, um, and I've never seen Game of Thrones but apparently that's a game of Thrones reference but you would probably using sort of psychology sort of terminology you, you would define that more as the sort of uh, what they call imposter syndrome which is which is the opposite of confident idiot which is where you actually do do have quite a lot of skills uh, but don't recognize them uh, in yourself you know so you know it's kind of waking up every morning and going uh, when am I gonna get found out? You know? Uh, so that's probably just as unhealthy, you know. So I guess it's trying to strike them. Up. Yeah, what
1: hope is there for any of us? Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> and why do you think that that is the case? Obviously the Dunning Kruger effect plays a part, but but is there anything else at play here? I mean, does it coincide with the emergence of new medias and new things, which has then enabled people to claim you know, almost full ownership and expertise of things without having that historic knowledge to back it up?
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, on the one hand, it's human nature. So, you know, good luck in fighting against that. But the, um, you know, thinking about advertising in particular, you know, one of the things that's happened, you know, obviously with, uh, you know, since the sort of dawn of the internet, uh, particularly social media, it's just the amount of information that's available. Uh, that you know, instead of having to actually sort of study, or you know, it, it, it's all far too easily available, uh, and and it's the loudest point of view that gets attention. So I think, um, but it's just it's just so easy to come across uh, pseudo profound bullshit that kind of. Mm-hmm. that that can be used um rather than do the hard work and and really you know uh, get to the bottom of things. so I think when there's easily available information that sounds plausible uh you know if you're you know and i get you know you don't you don't want to put too much sort of blame on people, but there's so much pressure to get things done quickly, get to uh, get to solutions quickly that it's easier mm-hmm. to skip doing proper uh research or at least finding uh proper research. So you know but yeah. it's a, it's the advertising industry equivalent of fake news uh or what have you.
1: I think there's certainly a want to formulate what works and resell that because it makes life easier. And again I think that's clearly a human instinct to take the path of least resistant.
0: Yeah, I just and just yeah, I mean, so so many popular Ideas are not really uh, grounded in any kind of uh, evidence, uh, or you know. Partly, I think uh, you know. uh, Again, this is where we let down the next generation a little bit. Is um, is is not giving them, uh, giving them the the proper training. You know, I mean, if you look at uh, you know, um, I mean, I'll give you an example. I mean, just a few weeks ago, I was in a. Session right with a bunch of young planners, and uh, um, you know they were. Uh, I was sort of helping to sort of mentor this this kind of program, and I brought up the uh, you know because I said I still keep a copy of the JWT planning guide from nineteen seventy four. I still keep a copy of that in my desk drawer. You know, I said because there's not one word of that document uh, that has that has dated right it's still everything's still relevant Uh, and uh not only was you know so there was no dispute uh uh, to my claim there because nobody even knew what that document was they've never heard of it you know um Mm -hmm. and and so i think you know so if we've got young young people coming in they've been let down by by their senior people but if they haven't been given uh, you know some of these key texts you know to 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 understand you know um
1: so. i'm so pleased you brought that up ian because we um well a i've been wanting to talk about that guide for i think the last two or three episodes of the podcast and, and it hasn't naturally <laughs> come no, no. up uh, but equally we we've we've had that transcribed and reprinted here at gasp and everybody has a copy we share it with everyone uh, within the agency, we share it with clients. It's because I couldn't agree more with you. It's absolutely fantastic and timeless. Yeah. Oh, you'll ha-
0: you'll have to uh, if you've had it transcribed. You'll have to give me a copy because the one I've got is the is the scabby PDF. That, you know, the one that everyone's got, <laughs> which you can't you can't copy and paste out of it because it's a photograph. You know, although it's quite so when I give it to you know I give it to people and I say read that, understand that, and then of course they can't copy and paste out of it, so they're forced to actually you know, type it out themselves. So I'm sure, uh, you know, I'm not a real psychologist, but I'm sure uh, they would tell you that that learning, you know, by going through the process of actually, you know, writing things down yourself, I think the learning uh, happens uh, at a deeper level. But it is, you know, it's it's such a great, uh, it's such a great document. I mean, the whole, uh, so I think it was written in 74, so it probably wasn't written by King himself,
1: uh, it, well, it was it was, was, Steve, it? It was Stephen. King. Oh, right. yeah, yeah
0: okay, because it was uh, mid '60s when they, they sort of came up with the idea. You know, I love the story about that. You know, because you had um, Jeremy Bullmore. Uh, uh, he he tells the story of being at JWT in the '60s, and they and they, um, they had an office in Berkeley Square or something or Grosvenor Square, one of these posh squares in West London. Uh, and uh, and he says uh, this is not related to the Stephen King, but it's a great story. He, he said that they were he was a copywriter by trade uh, um, before he became chairman and whatever. But he said that they were pulling an all-nighter one night, and because uh, so obviously JWT was was very very posh, so you you almost didn't get in there unless you had a double-barreled name, you know. Uh, and he said they were pulling an all-nighter, uh, and so it was about five in the morning, uh, and they just finished up, and they were looking out the square, and then all these horse and carriage things came clip-clopping around the square, uh, and somebody said to Blomore, oh, the suits are up early this morning, you know, <laughs> but that, that's how okay. that's how posh it was, you know. So you so you got JWT, Poshland over there, West London, inventing account planning, and then almost at exactly the same time, you've got, uh, it was, uh, um, this is the interesting thing, I think uh, uh, Stanley Pollitt was originally at an agency called, uh, um, it was Pritchard and something partners. I can't remember what the second name was, you know, but um mm. Uh, that eventually became uh, BMP, and so Paul, it was the PMB BMP, um, and and they sort of invented it at the same time, but they were over in Paddington, which was much more sort of working class, and their their main one of their big clients was the British Labour Party at the time, you know. So it was this funny sort of uh, you know cross class, cross city uh, sort of thing that happened at the same time so you have got the very post JWT and then the working class BMP and then they both come up with the you know one of the great ideas uh, of advertising you know almost simultaneously I mean coming back to the the bass thing I guess you know um, interesting thing for me because obviously because I came into this really through being a designer then a creative director and then came to sort of planning later on so I didn't have any of that formal, Training in market research, or I didn't have a research background at all, which was uh, actually turned out to be useful because I didn't have to unlearn uh, any sort of bad uh, stuff. So really, my introduction to really you know working with statistics and everything was was through you know first through the Byron Sharp book and then going back uh, and finding the original uh, Andrew Ehrenberg uh, stuff on data reduction and, and things like that, you know, so uh, mm. the point is there's no excuse, right, because uh, because that, that material, uh, material is, is all sort of available uh, for people to get, so, you know, even though I've said we've let a generation down by not giving them, you know, uh, proper training, of course I never had proper training, but uh, you know, I had that sort of moment uh, where I realised I didn't have a clue what I was talking about. And so then I had to go back and and sort of train myself, uh, you know, so it can be done. But I guess you need to want it uh, uh, to happen.
1: And I suppose you you need time to acknowledge that you don't know what you're talking about. Otherwise, you do come in. Yeah. Um, and it's that increase of knowledge, which which I'm sure is, is actually a wiser man will explain is actually all part of that Dunning-Kruger effect, where you go from knowing zero to knowing one thing. Yeah. You feel like you've become empowered with so much knowledge, when realistically, there's dozens and dozens of other things to learn. That's um, but relative to where you've come from, you feel like you're an expert.
0: Yeah, well, that's right. And if you don't expose to yourself to or get exposed to people who know a hell of a lot more than you, uh, then... The longer it takes, you know, for you to realise that how little you know. I love the. Um, uh, I mean, this is funny, you know, because uh, you know, with Netflix and all that kind of stuff, you think, oh, this has totally revolutionised TV viewing, you know, but it kind of hasn't. Back in the day, you would just watch whatever was on, uh, but I find myself with Netflix now just watching stuff that I, you know, I would never. I'm not really interested in, but it's just there. And uh, 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 so well, this was a little while ago. But you never know, you watch some kind of terrible thing and then you find something useful in it. I was watching uh, one of the uh, Pink Panther films, so not even the original Pink Panther. It was the remix with Steve Martin. So it was the remake, you know, Pink Panther remake, Pink Panther 2. Uh, it's a hideous, awful movie, but there's a great line in it. uh, uh, So basically, uh, Steve Martin is Inspector Clouseau and his detective minds uh, from Europe have all been gathered together in France somewhere uh, because they're going to get together and find this notorious jewel thief, right? And uh, uh, someone else is joining the group. It's this crime writer called uh, uh, Sonia something or other. Uh, played by a Bollywood, big Bollywood actress. She comes in and Cluzo says, Welcome, Sonia. Uh, let me get you up to speed with the investigation. We know nothing. You are now up to speed. <laughs> you know, so, uh, so I kind of use that you know, I, I, uh, a lot of the time. I say, so, so, you know, on the one hand, you've got this Dunning-Kruger effect and then and what have you. But even those uh, you know, who know something, all we know is a teeny, teeny little bit more Uh, than nothing Uh, and you know just sort of try and keep that in mind um and and it stops you getting overconfident yeah easier said
1: i mean other than marketers lacking training which which i think you're you're spot on how else can we Fix marketing. I just think that there's a line in your book that that I'd like to have engraved on our office walls, which is rather than engagement, conversations, or participation, people's actual buying behavior is about reducing complexity, reducing choice, and making easier, good enough decisions. Yeah. And I think when you say it out loud, it's so freaking obvious. But that's true of so much that is right with marketing, yeah. and yet wrong with how it's been practiced
0: yeah well that's i mean those are the kind of things so i mean they you know that those kind of notions don't really get taught even in marketing uh um, courses or, or or what have you but, you know because there's so much marketing theory uh, that can get taught i mean there's wrong theory as well quite often i'll get asked recommendations. Uh, recommendation you know people say well what what sort of advertising and marketing books would you recommend uh but I tend to people say to people, don't really read about marketing and advertising, read about, you know, other stuff, you know, read about uh human psychology or philosophy. Um, uh, you know, read novels uh about, you know, particularly historical novels or about things in a you know, you will get more insight from reading uh, uh I mean, I say read novels. Uh, I actually can't really read novels. I fall asleep. I sort of read. I like to read factual stuff, but you know, yeah, same, uh, yeah, don't do as I do. Do as I say. Um, but um, you know, I think because you know, a, a statement you know like that one that that you that you just read out, you know that that comes from that's from understanding a bit about human psychology. Uh, there are so many things, you know. I mean, it's a little bit of a cliche now to to say to talk about the attention economy, right? But I mean, it's not really a cliche because more and more, uh, you know, human attention is finite. We've only got so much to go around. We don't even have enough to give the appropriate attention to things that actually matter, you know, like mm. our own families, for instance. So to expect people to give disproportionate attention to things like brands is just ludicrous Um, and so you know uh, any tiny bit of attention that you get is really needs to be hard fought you know because it's really it's got to be taken away from something else and it's got to be taken away from something else that is probably more important you know there's an interesting trend i don't know if it's quite a trend yet but you're sort of hearing about it you know people are getting rid of smartphones you know, altogether, you know, or or deleting social apps from their phones just because you, you just haven't got enough attention to, you know, to give to all these things. And and the likes of Facebook and and everything, they're very, very good at, at um, they've got armies of psychologists in the background there con- continually working away. Like, what are the little things that are going to distract? But of course, if, I mean, the other thing, you know, obviously read about psychology because, uh, you know, <clears throat> One of the most misunderstood things, particularly in in, uh, in advertising, you know, because there's so much talk about emotional response and all that kind of stuff. People have no idea even basically how the mind actually works. And so they say, we want an emotional response from this campaign. It's like, well, but what kind of emotion, you know, and you know, which parts of the mind are you, are you trying to sort of attract, you know, because uh, the mind's made up of, you know, it's not one general purpose uh, mechanism, it's lots and lots of specialised mechanisms. And so when you get someone's attention, what you're really doing is drawing one of those mental modules' uh, attention uh you know, to the thing, I could go on for hours uh, about that. But you know, just so the, the, these are the kind of things. You know, we're in the business of trying to get people to do something, and so you need to have a, at least a, a cursory kind of understanding of, of what mechanisms within a person you're trying to move, uh, and how how that's going to happen. Rather than these silly sort of uh, emotional, rational dichotomies, you know, all decisions are rational. Uh, it's just they were rational in an environment far different to the one we live in now, where the, you know our minds were were formed. Um,
1: I think I think you're absolutely right there in terms of people's attention. They don't have time for the things that matter. But technology, if anything, and, and ad tech has increasingly become more and more intrusive and and therefore is less reliant on earning your attention. It seems to be more around how we can efficiently target or efficiently get an ad or a piece of communication in front of the right person's eye and and less focus on how do we make that piece of communication worthy of that person's attention. Yeah,
0: that's it. I mean, you know, because you read the... um uh you know sort of how viewability is quantified you know so 50 percent of pixels on screen for a second or something you know counts as a view Mm you know but it's just a it's just sort of really a silly way to 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 measure anything you know because it doesn't measure attention karen nelson field i heard her talk just recently it was quite interesting where they'd um They'd done some experiments looking at, you know, basically, the, in the nutshell, it was size matters, right? So, you know, uh, the most, the bigger the screen and the greater the amount of pixels that the, the ad covers on that screen correlates, you know, directly with likeliness of it being effective. Obviously, you've got to factor in, you know, whether it's creative or uh, all that kind of stuff, you know. So, but, I mean, this is the this is the challenge so in theory a 56 inch tv with 100 percent of the pixels covered with your ad uh, is more effective uh, and and that's that's a fact but if people are not looking at the tv you know as increasingly despite the tv lobby you know we'll say uh, the, the the TVs just as effective as, as it ever was I, i'm skeptical of that i don't think it's dead by a long way but we need to prepare uh, for a time when it just doesn't really work that way anymore you know and whether whether you know obviously with, with people are using more and more streaming services that are not ad supported now those streaming services are going to need to raise money in some way because they're going to run out of Capital yeah. until and so advertising will come into that environment, but whether it will be in the form of fifteen and thirty second spots, I I doubt. Uh, so it's going to probably mean more integration with the actual content. Now I guess the historical way to think about that is product placement. Um, so that's a fairly blunt instrument, you know. So I think you know creatively, you know, it'd be good if our creative People are thinking about ways that, that brands are going to be integrated into the actual entertainment uh, in, in different ways. That hasn't been done before. I think that's that's the big challenge. Because if you can do that, then you get the benefit, all of the benefit of that 100% of the pixels on a huge screen and 100% viewability and attention. Um, so you know, on the one hand you know there's there's possibly quite a bright future for tv advertising but it just won't be in the in the form that we're accustomed to you
1: know no well certainly not exclusively there might be as you say variants yeah. of um having that paid for yeah. your 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 point around the definition of an impression so 50 of the pixels is visible for for at least a second, is 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 a good area to to discuss or at least um, touch on briefly, because there was a time where Facebook, who you know they're they're a law unto themselves in in many ways, they were defining an impression as above zero pixels visible for above zero seconds. So yeah. without that universal measure, it's it, it's it makes it very hard to understand what value you're getting yeah. from the, you know, very
0: ambiguous analytics that we get my sense is not really to pay too much attention to anything that any particular vendor says about their own product. Um, I really mm. Look for independent sort of, uh, you know, analysis, the, the pro of course, you know, without going, you know, this is Bob Hoffman territory. But because because the whole all the digital measurement is such a murky world where you just don't know what really to believe. Um, my uh, uh, so a friend of mine, Don Marty, um, from who's uh, Mozilla in San Francisco, he was over here uh, last year. We we presented at a conference together, but he spent a few days in the office here working with me, and it was just because uh, obviously he's deep in the browser. Uh, end of 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 technology and everything, and the and the stuff they told me, you know, about uh, it really broadened my understanding of the scale of fraud, malware, just the mechanisms for generating impressions, you know, with domain spoofing and uh, mobile apps and everything. It's just it's un unfathomable how large um, this operation is, and also how easy it is. Uh, for, you know, any kid with rudimentary programming skills and a bunch of smartphones can uh, could, can start their own sort of click farm or in their back bedroom, you know, and the industry just has no idea, you know, particularly the uh, and bodies that are supposed to represent uh, the industry, how they can legislate or uh, anything about things they do fundamentally do not understand uh, you know both in the scale uh, and actually how uh, you know it goes well you can't out hack a hacker you know that's that's the, the first thing um, and so i don't know i don't have i don't have solutions uh, but um, but i think to turn a blind eye or bury our heads in the sand um you know and you can see Uh, Now, uh, so this is sort of dragging down into doom and gloom now, but you can start to see the television industry making the same mistakes uh, as the the digital publishers uh, did in allowing. Um, So there's a guy, uh, I can't remember his actual name, but he's on Twitter. He's a good guy to follow called, called Ad Fraud Researcher. He's just basically he, he's like the news feed for everything that's going on in ad fraud. It's a good one to to follow just to get just to get a picture of uh, of of everything uh, that's going on. And you can see like the the you know with programmatic or addressable TV, um, all the same mistakes that the digital publishing industry made uh, seven or eight or ten years ago. You can see them coming in that OTT. Uh, space um so i don't know you know it it, you know so just it's another another fine mess you got us into uh so but yeah you know it's it's a it's a thing to keep an eye on because um you know so much money being sucked out of the industry and it would be uh um, you know if it's going to be preventable first of all people need to to really pay attention What's And understand what's actually going on. Anyway, let's talk about something positive. <laughs> yeah.
1: Okay. Well, I've, we've had. Yeah. Um, I'd like, like to put a couple of listener questions to All you, right, cool. if we may. We, we, we've had a few in, but we've weeded them down to two. Uh, so Jack Davies, he quotes a line from an article of yours from 2015. Uh-oh. <laughs> we've forgotten that brand advertising creates demand, and direct response fulfills yeah. it. And Jack asks, have we remembered yet?
0: Uh, uh, no, I don't think so. Um, no. So, although you know, I guess, um, you know, uh, in recent years, I think Les Burnett and Peter Field have been instrumental in bringing that short-term versus long-term conversation further uh, into the, the general uh, you know so I hear that sort of spoken about a little bit more so you know maybe uh, in lip service uh, anyway uh, that's that's starting to um, uh, to come back in but it's not even an ideological question it's just a factual question you know direct marketers knew this uh, a long time ago. I mean I've worked at direct marketing agencies you know it used to be the mantra was you know our job you know our job is to make the phone ring. You know that was before the the internet, but our job was to was to get mm. get the click or get the inquiry. You know, so the the above the line advertising, you know, got it into people's heads, uh, and and our job was to then make it easy uh, to act. You know, and, and, and in direct marketing, you're dealing with a smaller pool. You know, because you know you need to reach everyone uh, in order. For the small group that are ready to buy at any given time uh, to do something, but there was never any, you know, th- there never used to be any debate uh, over that. You know, there were distinct roles for different types of comms. You know, but I think, um, you know, th- you know, a couple of things that have happened is obviously as more and more uh, of what we do has become. Uh, uh, technology dependent. Of course, more of that technology needs to be made by engineers and, uh, and all that kind of stuff. They they don't understand the actual, you know, the chain of how advertising works, what happens at, at what point. And because, you know, certain things seem to get clicks, then it's like, right, well, uh, or some kind of action, then there's, you know, more and more investment, you know, goes into those activities that seem to generate the short-term effect to the detriment of uh, of things there's a great there's a great little story uh, i think this is this is probably urban myth but it illustrates a point so we'll forgive it if it's not 100 true
1: don't let truth get in the way of a good story exactly,
0: exactly. no there used to be um uh, there used to be a little ad used to run on scottish tv i remember it when i was a kid and it seemed to be on for like 10 years. Right, the same ad, and it was for Nor, Stop Cubes. Right, and so it was, uh, it was a little Scottish ad. So it was, it was these two guys in a car, driving to work on a building site or whatever it was. And, and every day, the guy had his little flask of soup, and every day it was chicken soup. And then one day, uh, he, he's uh, he pulls his flask out and the guy driving said, that'll be the chicken soup. And he says, no, this'll be the pea and ham, you know. <laughs> uh, and then the joke was, pea and ham from a chicken. But, but, that, <laughs> but that same ad, right, run every, you know, like once a week, every week for about 10 years, right. And nobody got fed up of it, right. Uh, but there was that constant priming you know, with the funny joke that you didn't get fed up of because it was funny and it was the same one every time, uh, and that was pretty much all they ever did. You know, uh, mm. uh, and yet, you know, it's still it, it was still sort of number one or two uh, in that that category. So they didn't. There was no. Um, I can't. Remember, I don't know what my point of that was, other than it's a it, it's a funny story, but it's. um you know there's nothing i guess that's one of those things that was continually effective for years and years and years there was nothing particularly measurable about it uh, all that you know was that a lot of people saw that uh, quite close to the weekend yeah. and when they went shopping they bought more stock cubes you know so the the obsession uh with attribution you know particularly and we've got all these kind of newfangled things like market mix modeling and econometrics and all that kind of stuff i'm not sure what really that contributes other than uh lots of kind of sciencey looking charts and and you're still talking about
1: that ad now
0: yeah yeah and like every every time you go in the supermarket and pick up a can of beans right or Heinz beans right what goes around in your head beans means Heinz yeah beans means Heinz now they probably haven't run that campaign for about 15 years you know but it still yeah. it still goes round uh, in your head uh, you know when you do it, so that I guess the point the the point is, you know, to the things that are proven, you know, to sell, and to uh, and to build brands is creativity, something memorable, being something that kind of you know has some relevance to people's lives uh, in general. It doesn't need to be personally relevant, but if it's just it's easy to think of, you know, it's all the uh, you know all, all of that sort of mental availability type stuff and then and, and just being able to buy it you know well
1: that that's chicken stock adverts is a brilliant example of something that just makes you smile which sounds really wanky yeah. but um you know we're talking about it now and, I, and and i i wasn't familiar with that joke but i can imagine that i wouldn't tire of that joke easily so i think hats off firstly to the client for allowing that to run for so long
0: there is another little urban myth about that that apparently uh, they they just forgot about it and so nobody cancelled <laughs> so, it just, it just so it was more by accident than design. But,
1: I don't know if I want that to yeah. be true or not, but either way, it's a good story. Yeah. Um, our second question from Mark Walters. He asks, "What can we do to fix programmatic?" Um, so I think we have to assume that we all agree that something's uh, broken there. But um, yeah, I
0: don't. Th- I, I'm going to sort of disagree with that. So programmatic is just is just pipes, right? It's just a delivery mechanism. Uh, and 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 there's probably nothing particularly wrong. Uh, it, it's something, you know, still in the early stages, it'll develop, it'll become more sophisticated. Um, but, uh, you know, it's a bit like saying, what's wrong? You know, how do we fix the tap? Because there's dirty water coming out, mm-hmm. right? It's nothing to do with the tap, it's to do with what's going into the water. Uh, and so, you know, for all the things that we that, that we've talked about, I think industry bodies, uh, just individual agencies or planners or you know anyone just need to look more carefully at what what they're proposing, what they're buying, what the solutions are. Does it seem transparent? Do I understand everything about you know what this particular vendor is providing? Can I be confident that it's going to go in places? Where people can see it, uh, where the money you know that the advertiser spends is going, you know, to you know, or as much to the publisher or the going to be carrying the advertising, those kind of things. So it's nothing to do with programmatic as a mechanism. That's just an automation, which if it's used properly, should actually be better. Than, and certainly more beneficial for humans, you know, because then people can spend their time actually thinking about, uh, you know, planning and stuff, rather than, you know, pumping things into into spreadsheets. So I think you know, automation uh, is is a positive, And there's nothing there's nothing broken about programmatic. It's what's going down those pipes, and where it's ending up. That's the that's the problem. Yeah, that makes sense.
1: Now we come to the final part of the interview, which is our four pertinent poses we like to put to all of our guests. So number one, Ian, what advice would you give to your younger self?
0: Um, I I came into the industry sort of quite late. And so the mistakes that I made are things that probably would have been better excused if a younger person had done it. So if I was talking to my younger self, it would be, you know get your shit together stop dicking around and and you know uh <laughs> and get things done quicker you know i'd be um you know cause I'd, so get in yeah, early yeah make mistakes early but when there's less uh less at stake yeah i suppose you look you can get away with it when you look you fresher
1: faced yeah, yeah not to say your face isn't fresh yeah. I,
0: I can tell you it's uh it's <laughs> less than, less than fresh you know Particularly at uh, this time in the morning. You know. <laughs> yeah, I got a bit of a. I've got a bit of a cold. It's. It's. The, we've got this funny weather in Melbourne, right? It's coming into autumn, so like one minute it's freezing, and then the next minute it decides to be thirty degrees again. It can't make up its mind.
1: Yeah, that would play havoc with yeah. me. Uh, so number two, if if you could banish one thing from the industry, what would it be and why? Uh, it would. Uh,
0: once banish one thing from the industry. Um, I I think I'd probably remove people's internet access uh, for, you know, sort of seven hours of the day um, and and force them to go in there to actually sort of, you know, read books or write things down, have their own thoughts, uh, draw things on walls, go out and talk to people, you know, go into supermarkets, watch what people do. the you know the biggest curse is the sort of you know Google planning you know where it's oh I need to solve a problem yeah. so I'll just go and you know this is you know I mean we talked about this earlier this is a big factor in that sort of Dunning Kruger uh, effect because if you don't have to engage your own mind uh, you know it's very easy just to pick up bad information because it's there at your fingertips. So,
1: yeah. I think getting out and talking to people and actually watching people shop, et cetera, yeah. is brilliant advice. Yeah. And that's that's true of, of um of, of you know, I think every marketer, so regardless of where they're based, there's there's a stat that um I I I don't remember the precise figures, but it's 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 relevant nonetheless. But I believe it's in the UK at least, eighty percent of marketers live and work in London, but eighty percent of consumers don't. And I think that's caused a, um, you know, a problem to put yeah,
0: it, simply. Yeah, yeah. You know, I kind of, you know, I sort of buy that, you know, to a degree. Um, although I'm not sure how, uh, you know, uh, you know, if if you said, well, they all lived in, you know, Kensington or something, then yeah. But obviously, you know, there's parts of London that are fairly representative of just about anywhere else. Uh, um, you know, in the UK. So, uh, I d- mm. you know, I d- it's it's a little bit of a, when you get into that representation thing, it can be a bit of a rabbit hole when, you know, you start mm. talking about quotas, you know, it's like, well, hang on a minute, you know, we've 100 people here and we've only got three northerners, you know, it's, uh, um, I'm not sure how yeah. use, useful. Uh, that is, but I do think, uh, I mean, maybe coming back to the previous question, you know, for instance, in my sort of normal life, you know, I don't socialize with advertising people. None of my friends work in the industry. They all do, you know, other jobs, you know, everything from, you know, driving a truck or one guy's a CFO, at a biometrics company, you know, so it's kind of uh, in, in, your, in your life, you know, it's more about getting out of the, the job bubble when you're just doing your ordinary life. And that's harder for the younger ones, you know, because their social life revolves around, uh, you know, people that they that they work with, you know. So uh, I, mean, I don't know how you solve that. Maybe mm-hmm. maybe we set up sort of weekend care centers, right, where we send young advertising people <laughs> to go and sort of hang out with uh, with people that work in shops or something. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah
1: yeah yeah there's definitely some wisdom yeah. there um now i'm wary that you talked about um or recommended people avoid books yeah. on marketing so our third question is any books that you would recommend so just to stress that can be completely outside of, of marketing
0: um many 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 things i mean i've got um one of my favorite writers just now is um a guy called Matt who's a Swedish uh, organisational economist or something. So he's written a, a few books, um, one uh, in particular called uh, The Triumph of Emptiness, uh, which is, which is mm-hmm. uh, fantastic. He also co- co-authored uh, a book called The Stupidity Paradox with a guy called Andre Spicer, who's an economics professor in London. Spicer's done his own book uh, business bullshit, which is hilarious. So that's a little sort of trilogy that uh, I sort of dip in and out of. Um, I like uh, Daniel Dennett, the philosopher. There's um, Intuition Pumps, great one for planners because it's kind of, it's all thinking tools. So that's a good one. So, um, and I read a lot of psychology. I'm actually into sort of textbooks at the moment. Uh, So I've got one, the Cosmedias and Tubi that they uh, sort of, uh, edited called the adapted mind uh, so evolutionary basis of culture uh, so that's uh, you know it's full of like academic papers by other uh, psychologists and anthropologists but you can go down all kinds of rabbit holes so you know i think getting one or two good textbooks is good because um because uh, you can just uh, go into the sort of bibliographies and the references and, and find all all kinds of things. So whether it's uh, whether it's psychology or philosophy or uh, uh, things like that. So uh, anyway, that that that's a few. Mm.
1: Um, yeah, great. I'll, we'll we'll link to all of those on the this episodes. Listing yeah. so everyone can can check those out. And then lastly, we always dedicate every show to someone, and we bestow or hospital pass that honor, depending on your point of view, to our guest, who also has to give their reason why. So over to
0: you, Ian. So I talked to earlier on. um So my the you know when I sort of decided that I that was this is kind of the path I wanted to pursue. I think was when I was at Weapon Seven. Uh, in London so the guy he'll probably cringe with embarrassment if he hears this but uh, so Mark Brown was the was one of the partners there and he sort of was a you know very well known almost legendary planner I think in London in the in the uh, in the 90s he'd been at Leo Burnett and places like that so but mark uh, he didn't really teach me much. But it was more just observing, just his sort of behaviour, how he uh, uh, how he sort of went about himself, the thoroughness. He was a you know he was a great researcher. And when I when I joined Weapon Seven, I I went there. And Mark took me down. There was a pub around the corner on Charlotte Street down in a basement I think Went right down there and he said to me said he said, and he said uh, this is why we're here we want to completely revolutionize the world of advertising you know I was sold Then I was like well when do I start because that sounds like you know I've no idea what that means but it sounds pretty exciting <laughs> so so I'd probably yeah. I would credit well credit or blame depending on what you want, uh, you know, uh, uh, Mark Brown, probably for for anything anything that I've uh, achieved. So. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Fantastic. Uh, so as a as a final call to action, please everyone, if you've enjoyed this episode, if you head over to the podcast homepage we've shared. Links to some of Ian's brilliant articles, links to the book recommendations we've just discussed, and everything else referenced in the last um, hour. And how else can they get more of you in their lives, Ian? Any upcoming events to reference? Well,
0: the next book, which is uh, called Shot by Both Sides, what we have here is a failure to communicate, that will be out, <clears throat> uh, I'm thinking probably about July. So it's kind of done. There's bits of editing and stuff going on just now so however long that takes and then it goes through the mincer but that that'll be out this year sometime obviously you can buy the first one on uh, on uh, amazon and other online book uh, places um i'm on twitter so it's e-n-p-e-a-o-n-p on on twitter follow me there there's the um i'm in that eager greens book as well so that's uh, that's been a that's been yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, huge. Uh, I want to do more speaking uh, stuff, but it's, uh, it's proving hard. One, because I I established the rule that I wasn't going to speak anywhere unless I got paid. So, you know, that yeah. sort of put the, an, an end to that. <laughs> uh, but plus, uh, plus, being in Australia... You know even even if people want to you know pay your expenses then it's still it's a big expense to fly someone out from here so i don't know but if there's any sort of rich uh uh conference organizers listening and they want a want an international best-selling author uh, uh to speak then i'm uh, i'm available uh, for
1: that <laughs> excellent right. well thank you for joining us ian it's been an absolute pleasure to well, talk
0: th- thank you for having me hopefully uh Hopefully that was okay. it All was
1: right. great. Cool. So um thank you to everyone who's willingly willingly let their ears be bent by us <laughs> in the last hour or so. If you want to uh, get in touch with the show and have your questions answered in upcoming episodes, please email us direct at hello at calltoaction.co
0: I can't get no call to action But I try, and I try, and I try,
1: and I try